Blog Good afternoon, this is Robert Fisher, and you're listening to Monergy Life. Uh, this is a rescheduled broadcast from the show uh, from yesterday. We had some technical problems, and uh, we're excited to get David Sussman on the line from Israel, and hopefully he should be calling in any minute. If you read the description of the episode, it indicated that Israel is ra- rarely outside of the daily news, and today is no exception. Uh, earlier today, I was reading two stories about Israel. One was uh, about Israel's cooperation with the Palestinian Authority, uh, creating some tension with Hamas in terms of um, trying to avoid some of the attacks that have been going on in Israel, and the cooperation has been um, uh, somewhat uh, delicate with the Palestinian forces. Uh, So that article indicated that it's putting some pressure on Hamas, the fact that the Palestinian Authority is cooperating with Israel a bit. The other article, even perhaps more interesting, was... Uh, an announcement by Iran that they would be calling uh, the so-called martyrs who have been uh, involved in various uh, knife attacks uh, uh, and assaults in Israel, and they would be contacting these uh, families, um, many of whom have been shot dead by the Israeli Defense Force, and providing them with $7,000 for each martyr that was killed. That's their terminology, not mine. Uh, The other thing that they indicated they would be doing is they would be offering uh, $30,000. Hello, David. Yeah, Robert. Yes, Shalom. Welcome to the show. Shalom. Thank you for having me. Uh, I was just explaining to our listeners uh, two articles that I was reading about on the Internet before uh, starting the show. One was the cooperation between uh, uh, the Palestinian Authority and Israeli forces in terms of going into some of the West Bank areas to prevent some of these knife attacks that are happening all over Israel. And the second article was that the ambassador of Iran in Beirut announced that he would be providing $7,000 for each so-called martyr uh, killed in the recent uh, attacks in Israel. And and Iran would also be providing $30,000 for every house demolished by Israel. Interesting, right? right? It's interesting, but not surprising. We've seen this from other leaders within the Arab world um, before Iran, like Saddam Hussein, in Iraq, also gave money to Palestinian terrorists, and also the Palestinians themselves. So Mahmoud Abbas and the Palestinian Authority, who is pleading to the world right now for donations and requesting money from the international community when almost a third of their budget is used in order to pay families and uh, the particular terrorists themselves who are in prison. So if you're a terrorist who are sent to an Israeli prison, the Palestinian Authority pays you a certain amount of money that goes into your bank account that you can use in the prison system or wherever 
you can spend the money, and also your family will be supported by the Palestinian Authority. So it definitely doesn't come as a surprise to me. I see. Well, let's back up a bit. Um, Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about how you ended up in Israel? That's that's a long story. Uh, well, uh, I know it's a long story, but maybe you can shorten the version a bit. But give to, some of the salient elements. To 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 to, to put it in, in the shortest way possible. Um, growing up, I was a very nomad, a, a free spirit, you could say, and I was traveling around following this band Fish for for many years. And in 2000, the band retired, and I found myself somewhat lost, not knowing which direction I was going to go in and what I was going to do with myself. And I decided I would go to the airport and travel abroad somewhere. And I saw at the very bottom of the screen of all the different destinations that were leaving, Tel Aviv, I said to myself, I'm Jewish. If I'm going to go explore the world, I might as well start with my heritage and start with... uh, where my roots are. So I came to Tel Aviv and uh, been here 15 years now. Right. And uh, you also have served um, in a portion of the army that uh, is designated for foreigners. Is that correct? Is that fair to say? Um, but you were actually... Yeah, you know, I wouldn't know if I would say, I would say that it's geared towards foreigners because there's actually a unit... Uh, in the IDF that I guess you could say is similar to in the olden days, the French foreign legions, Mm -hmm. it's called Machal. And without being a citizen of Israel, you can actually go through training and serve in a number of different units, some of them elite units within the army without actually what we call in Israel, make an aliyah, which means become a citizen. So it, that would be a particular unit for foreigners, you know, people who aren't actually citizens of Israel. I was already a citizen when I went into the army, but I was in a very unique unit that was for older people because I was 27 when I actually joined um, the Israeli Defense Forces, the Israeli army. I see. And... Did no. you actually see combat as part of your um, experience? Well, you know, unfortunately, everybody who serves in the Army will eventually see some type of conflict, whether it is a Palestinian with a knife charging at you, and you need to make that split-second decision of how am I going to defend myself, um, or you are going to have to face the situation where you're working, you know, along the border and you're seeing suspicious activity or a roadside bomb and you need to call in the proper units to come and to defuse the, the situation. Uh, so my unit that I went into, which, which actually doesn't exist right now, it was called Schlaz Bet which was for people who are older than 25 years. It was a sort of abbreviated um, abbreviated training, and then you went into as a reservist, right? So, so most Israelis, when they turn 18, will serve three years in the army. Now, you can serve in a number of different capacities. If you're a pacifist and you don't want to 
carry around a weapon. You don't need to carry around a weapon. There's plenty of opportunities to do work in the Army in an office. You can go into intelligence. You can go into computers. You, I mean, there is a number of different facets to the IDF. So, uh, so my unit, though, that I went into was a, was abbreviated trading, and it was for what is called in Hebrew tukhanim, which is the artillery. So I had a artillery training, and then I was in the reserve duty, which here in Israel we call Miluim. So my first call up for Miluim reserve duty was in 2006, and in the summer that was for the Second Lebanon War with Hezbollah. So yes, I did see combat. And and what's uh, what would you say would be some of your main takeaways from that experience? How did it change you in terms of your perspective, not just on Israel but on the world? Hmm. Well, it's a good question. Um, I would say it had more of an impact on me of how I related to myself. And then through my relationship with myself changes the way I view the world, right? It wasn't necessarily changed the way that I view the world. Um, being in conflict and being in near-death experiences where people are shooting at you and things are blowing up around you um, will definitely alter your perspective on your purpose and your destiny, if you will, here on earth. So for me, going into the army, I don't, or going into the war, I was, I was 29 years old. I was 29 years old when, when this call up happened in 2006. And I had a very different background growing up than I think many not necessarily Israeli soldiers, but, you know, being an American, and I'm sure most of your listeners are American, most uh, Americans who are going into the Army wouldn't necessarily have such a a hippie, let's say, background. Um, but here I was, not so long ago, with dreadlocks and a big beard and traveling around in a big van and living this sort of nomadic lifestyle in America, coming to Israel and unfortunately tasting terrorism on a personal level. Uh, we had two Arabs from, uh, from England actually who came over on their English passports who came to Israel and went into Gaza before we had the security barrier. So before we built the security barrier to protect ourselves from, uh, from the Arabs living in the disputed territories, they just went into Gaza. They, came out of Gaza with suicide belts and they blew themselves up at a bar that I was working at called Mike's Place in Tel Aviv, right on the beach. And that's really what eventually propelled me to want to join the army, right? To, to, to be able to defend myself after having a friend of mine killed in this way, in a very tragic way. And also we have to remember that, that, that during the, the second intifada that over a thousand innocent citizens, a thousand Israelis were killed during that conflict. We're talking men, women, and children. We're talking people who are going to school, who are riding the bus to work, who are celebrating the Passover celebration, who are going to weddings. These were the places that were 
attacked by these Palestinian terrorists. So having tasted that and then feeling the need to defend myself and then and then joining the army and eventually finding myself in this artillery unit and then being called up into this war and now I'm confronted with uh, real real life and death decisions that need to be made. So um, I guess that the, the big impact was uh, personal self-discovery and responsibility and uh, doing what I believe is my fair share in, in making the world a better place, being active, being an active participant in the world and not just going along with the ride. That's pro- that was, that's probably the main thing I took away from our relationship and the way I view the world is, is I think the world in general needs more responsibility, needs more people who are taking active roles in what is happening to our world today. So you believe that many people are avoiding responsibility for their actions and throughout the world. You see Definitely. that as a trend? Definitely. Oh, that's without a doubt. That's, that's, that's without a doubt. With themselves and also with the world just in general, with the things that are happening, I don't think people are are really so um, sensitive to to a lot of the uh, the misery that that's happening in the world today with a lot of the the discomfort that people are going through and and I think people are involved which we should all be involved with ourselves but what are we involved with ourselves with are we trying to grow are we trying to expand ourselves are we trying to become more empathetic and compassionate towards other people or are we trying to just create more for ourselves and if we're creating more for ourselves, what's the purpose of that creating for ourselves? Is it just to be loved by other people, to be liked by other people, to be more popular, to be more dominant? You know, I think I think the world, I think people need to be a little bit more um, self-reflective and think about the direction that they're moving in. That's interesting. So, so I I agree with you. I think there is definitely a trend towards more self-absorption throughout the world. And, and, you know, one can sort of look at some of the popular distractions that people have, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, you know, how many followers do I have? So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's as if people's attention has gone inward rather than outward, I think, to a very large degree. Right. Uh, well, you know, so all do, those things that you just mentioned can be used in a positive way. I mean, I'm I'm right. personally not on Instagram or Twitter. Maybe I should be. I am on Facebook, and your uh, listeners can look me up, David Sussman. Uh, that's my personal page, or my fan page is David Sussman Israel Tours. Uh, I have a touring company here in uh, in Israel, and I bring hundreds of people and um, thousands of people, and hundreds of groups here to Israel on on wonderful trips throughout the land to to learn about the history and the culture and obviously the politics as well so um so i i definitely look you know on a probably a weekly basis for sure how many people are following me how many new people have connected with me and i think i'm giving over a lot of positive information factual information things for people to think about to ponder to see both sides of uh the situation here so that they can come with an educated understanding and 
make an ed- educated decision on how they feel about what's happening here. Well, let's talk about the history of Israel and, and try to bring it up to present for our listeners, because some of these, uh, some of the listeners of my show may be completely unfamiliar with how Israel even came into existence and what it really means in the world today. You know, we have the headline news every day, but how many people really understand the background for some of the events that are occurring today? What do you think would be some of the the important uh, elements for people to get to understand where Israel is today? So let's go back into history a bit. In your opinion, since you've studied this and as part of becoming a tour guide, you have to delve into the history of Israel, right? Uh, you're very you're very familiar with some of the crucial elements. What do you think are some of the key misconceptions that people have about the very existence of Israel? Well, first of all, let me just say that something very interesting that I saw today on the street. I saw somebody walk down with a uh, T-shirt. I don't know what the weather is where you are today, but here in uh, in Jerusalem, in Jerusalem, it was 75 degrees. So people are already wearing T-shirts. And a guy was walking down the street, and he has a T-shirt on. On the back of it, it says Israel, and it's got the Megendavi, the Star of David, the seal of the state of Israel, and a symbol for Jewish people for hundreds of years. And underneath it, it says established 1000 BCE, right, before the Common Era, or or BC. Sometimes, oftentimes, people refer to it as BC, right, 1000 BC. So Israel is beyond 1,000 BCE, BC. Um, Israel goes back all the way to the time of Abraham, who came here roughly 1,800 BCE, right? So we're talking 3,800 years old. Jerusalem, Jerusalem was established as our capital during the times of King David. That was 1,000 BCE, roughly, give or take a few decades. Um, So, and then we had the temple here. We had the Jewish kingdom. We had the first temple period, we were sent into an exile 70 years later. We came back, right? So when people talk about Zionism, you, there was Zionism 2,500 years ago where we were weeping on the banks of the uh, – uh, in Babylon, right, on the shores of Babylon. So we were already longing to come back. Then we had the Second Temple period. And that whole period is roughly about 1,000 years, right, from the time of King David establishing Jerusalem as our capital – all the way to the destruction of the Second Temple, which happened in the year 70 CE. That's over a 1,000 years of Jewish independence and Jewish rule here in the land of Israel, and that's undisputable. Today, archaeology has dug up. You can go anywhere in Israel. Robert, come here to Israel, bring a shovel, stay in a hotel, walk out to the pool, and then next to your lounge here, start digging, and you dig five feet into the ground, you will find the remains of something that belongs to one of your great-great-great-grandparents or one of your cousins, a family member, somebody who is Jewish who is living in this land because that's how plentiful the proof is here in the land of Israel of our historical connection to the land. 70 CE, temples destroyed, the Romans take over, they turn some of our holy cities like Jerusalem into pagan capitals here. Um, they allow us to have some type of uh, independence. They give us certain areas in which we can live, basically establishing ghettos within our own land that Jews are allowed to be in. And uh, and this continues through the Byzantine period, the Byzantine period after the Roman period. 
That goes until 638. And then the Arabs come in, right? The Umayyads, they're the first Arab people who come into the land of Israel. We're talking about six years after the death of Muhammad. You know, most people don't know the history of Islam. Islam, I mean, Muhammad was only around between 622 and 632, right? For 10 years, he was preaching. I mean, he was much older than that, but for 10 years, he's basically preaching this new religion of Islam. After right. his death, you have the first major jihad. They come across, they conquered most of the Byzantine Empire, most of the Persian Empire, and uh, they established Jerusalem as a, uh, as a significant city for themselves. Then you have the Crusader period. The Christians come here to the land of Israel. Then the Muslims you know, conquer the, the Crusaders again with the Mamluks. And the Mamluks from Egypt are conquered by the Turks, and then the Turks are ruling this area, then the Turks are conquered by the, by the British. And, Robert, this all has to do with the history of Israel and modern history, right? Because the land of Israel today, the state of Israel, including the disputed territories, right, including the areas that the, that the, that the Arabs want to make as a new country called Palestine, even those areas, the disputed areas, as well as Israel today, Israel proper, we'll call it, none of it has been independent, right? None of it has been an independent state, kingdom, country since the fall of the Second Temple, which was during the Jewish rule, until 1948, when the Jews once again declared our independence here in our native land. And that's an important thing to, to factor in. Because when you think about the conflict between the Israelis, the Jews, and the Arabs or the Palestinians, you've got to ask yourself, well, where does the name Palestine come from? Do, do, well, do you there know where never really was. Well, I think that there never really was a Palestinian state before, right? That was called Palestine. Is Not only was there never a palace, that is true. There was never a state called Palestine or an independent place called Palestine. The name Palestine comes from a, a reference to a biblical people who arrived here on the shores of Israel around the same time that Joshua crossed and the Israelites crossed over the Jordan River. The, 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 the Pelishtim in Hebrew, the Philistines in English, or the Palestinia in Latin arrived on the shores of Israel and they were here during the first temple period. And when the Romans were here, after they destroyed our temple in the year 70 CE, there was an emperor by the name of Hadrian who named the, the, the area. He's so mad at the Jewish people that he renamed the area Palestine. It's the first time, 135 CE, that, that, that the name Palestine is being used for this land. And since it was never independent, all of these other empires, right, whether it was the, the Romans or the Byzantine in Constantinople or even the Arabs themselves, when the Arabs were here in the land of Israel, they, they never created an independent state here. They were always um, – their centers were always in Damascus, right, in Syria or in Egypt, Mecca, Medina, which are their holy places, and Saudi Arabia of today. So the area was never independent, even during the Arab periods. So everybody just called the area, the, the, the geographical area, they just referred to as Palestine, because that's what the Romans did. They, they called it Palestine to name it after our 
enemies during the first temple period. So it's it's just shocking. It's shocking that 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 people try and claim that these Arab people calling them Palestinian have some type of ancient historical connection to the land of Israel. It's shocking. It's it's, it's unbelievably shocking. There's never been a place Palestine. Never any coins printed called Palestine. Never no president, king, state. It's, it's it's never existed. And now you even see the history books where people are saying that Jesus was a Palestinian. Huh. And the name for the land here in Israel during the days of of, of Jesus, right during the, during during let's say zero to thirty three, which is when historians say Jesus walked the earth, the area was still called Israel, still under Jewish rule. There was still a temple in Jerusalem here in Jerusalem. So it's uh, people really need to learn the facts. People need to learn. The so facts. is it fair so to, to say, to based, right? I, I mean, that's a really great quick historical update to bring us up to modern times. But based on that, uh, David, is it fair to say that what people are craving in terms of a Palestinian state is is something to to bring the people together? And is it fair to say that these were displaced people in general uh, throughout history, either being under the rule of the Romans, uh, you know, the Syrians or other um, Muslim groups, uh, but these people never really had their own country. They never really were Palestinians to begin with. Right. Well, I mean, as but far as the it, Arabs who know, are living it, in the lands of Judea and Samaria, right, which are the disputed territories, the areas that, that the Arabs want to call Palestine, so talking about those particular Arabs that are living in Judea and Samaria and the disputed territories, right. so most of them, if you look at if you look at their names, right, and you look at the the lineage of the, the what what the Arabs call a Hamula, like the tribes, like the family tribes that that live in this disputed territory, you can actually trace back those families to what is today Lebanon, Jordan. Syria, Egypt, and what occurred in the 19th century in the 1800s with the advent of the steam-powered engine and the ships and the ability to travel at a much quicker pace, you see a lot of migration happening. You see a lot of immigration happening to different parts of the world, including America, right? The 19th century, the 1800s, Ellis Island opens up, New York City becomes this huge metropolitan area with so many different types of people flooding its shores. Well, the same thing's happening here in Israel and Jews from Europe and from Russia and even from, you know, the, the, the areas of Yemen and what's today Saudi Arabia and throughout the Middle East are taking advantage of this ability to transport themselves, this ability to move quickly and, they are deciding to return to their native land. They're deciding to return to Israel. And so Jews start to, to, to arrive by the tens of thousands, and they need to build homes. They need to cultivate the land. And in order to do that, they need help. They need workers. They need to employ people. And... Some of these Arab families that we see today 
living in these disputed territories are families who were peasants, right? Who were peasants 150 years ago, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, who were living in Syria and what's today Lebanon and Jordan, right? They were living in these countries and they saw an opportunity that had begun to develop in the land of Israel, which was being referred to as Palestine by the Turks, right? The Turkish government, Istanbul, who was controlling this area at the time, who allowed the Jews really to start to develop the area as well. A lot of, a lot of the land, even in the disputed territories, was purchased legally with documentation from the Turkish government or from the landowners, uh, from, from, from the citizens of, uh, of the Turkish Empire who owned the land, that was purchased legally in order to develop the land. So these peasants came here to find employment, and they were paid a fair wage, and they started to build themselves up. And once you have two cultures coming together, eventually there's going to be some type of conflict. And already by, uh, by 1929, right, by 1929, which isn't that long ago, but by 1929, uh, you have this individual who is sort of the leader of the Arab people living in this area. And again, there's no name for the area. It's not independent. But now it's not the Turks, right? The Turkish government lost their power in the land of Israel. They lost it in World War One to the British. So now it's under the British Empire, right? All these different all, all these different empires ruling the land, never independent, right? Now the British are ruling the land, and the this guy rises up. His name is Sheikh Husseini. Sheikh Husseini, right? He's the spiritual leader and the political leader of the Arab people, and he instigates riots throughout the land of Israel, and in particularly in the city of Hebron, right? Hebron, where the tomb of Abraham and Isaac, Jacob, right? Abraham, Yitzchak, Yaakov their wives, where they're buried in Hebron, it's in the news today, where there was a continual Jewish existence, a continual Jewish presence living in the city of Hebron from the times of Abraham, 3,800 years ago, all the way up until 1929. That's unbelievable to think of a people keeping their tradition, their culture, their names, all of that throughout the centuries and the millennia living in one place and all of a sudden it's destroyed because the the Arabs start to riot they slaughter and and kill over 70 Jews and the British who are ruling the land go into the city forcibly evict or evacuate all the Jews who are living there and say it's for your better it's for it's for your betterment to leave this city because the Arabs are going to uh, kill the rest of you instead of trying to put a stop to them and telling the Arabs, hey, this is not a civilized way to behave. Stop killing innocent people. Instead, they say, no, 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 no. You need to pull out and, and you need to give this land to the Arabs. Right? So, so already we see this happening in 1929, Sheikh Husseini. And for the first time in, almost, in, in over 3,000 years, Jews aren't living in the holy city of Hebron. And they're forcibly removed. In 1936, in 1936, three years after the election of Hitler, Sheikh Husseini, the same guy, instigates more riots throughout the land that last 
for a number of years, all the way up until 1939, the beginning of World War II, and Sheikh Husseini begs Hitler, goes to Hitler and says, Hitler, please come to the land of Israel, right? Please come to the territory that has been referred to as Palestine for the last 1,800 years because it's never been independent. And come here with your planes and your tanks and finish our Jewish problem that exists here as well. Now, what do you think the British did when they heard about that? Well, this is before they got involved in the war, right? Well, this would still be during the time of uh, Chamberlain, but I wouldn't say that. Uh, I mean, this would be during the time of Chamberlain, before the time of Churchill. But nonetheless, right. the the British aren't, I wouldn't call them friends with Adolf Hitler in Germany. So here you have a guy within the British mandate, right, because this area is controlled by by England, and he's begging the German dictator, Adolf Hitler, to come to Israel, to come to the land of Israel, to come well, to, did to they what do was something to, to Yeah, did they do something to silence this sheik? Yeah, well, they kicked him out of the land. They kicked him out of Israel. So he goes to Germany, and he becomes an advisor to Adolf Hitler. Hmm. And he leads a brigade, the same guy, right, the same guy, this, this Arab who referred to him as Palestinian, leads a brigade of German soldiers into Croatia and eliminates, murders, slaughters over 40,000 Jews of Croatia, almost completely eliminating the Jewish population in Croatia during this time. Well, so it's, it's a it's, uh, it's been yeah. a long it's been a long history that uh, a, a conflict that's been that's been going on here. Right, right. It, you know, I think it makes it difficult for the average person who's not as well versed in the details of the history to take a position today because you know the the world is a, is is a very preoccupied place and you know Israel for some people might look like a thorn in their side you know who you know where do these right. people right because it's a small country it's it gets a lot of attention a lot of news and people have very strong feelings about Israel today pro and con i think but i think that right. based on what we've heard today which i'm so glad to have you on the show david you have really clarified things for uh, my listeners, including myself. I've learned things I didn't know uh, about the history of that area. And, you know, the one thing that, that strikes me after listening to the, the historical background for, for the state of Israel is, you know, it's so interesting how um, different countries try and yield their influence over people, but it it always shifts, right? It could be the Turks, it could be the English, but you know, it's the people are are living in these places and they're under the rule of all different kinds of foreign uh, countries or foreign forces, and you know, one could understand that they're looking for something of their own, but to put it in historical perspective, there never was anything you know, relating to an independent Palestinian state in any of history. I mean, it's pretty clear that that's true, but it doesn't mean that the people who are living there have, you know, have no needs, have no right to something. 
uh, just like everybody right. in this world. And I think I, right. I think that really puts it in perspective. We're all human beings living on the planet, and we have to do something to help us right. live together. I think ultimately you have to come out on that side. <clears throat> you know, right. there has to be some way for people to live together uh, without trying to kill each other all the time. Right. Well, you know, it's interesting to say that, Robert, because I, I think it's also a very important thing for the world to understand is that the government here in Israel has openly stated that they are looking forward, right? Not like looking forward as in they're excited or something like that, but they are looking like forward, like trying to see ahead and in the future and to say, hey, a, the only way to have a true lasting peace here in the land is for a two-state solution. Nobody's denying that. I mean, you do have small factions who are, but when you look at Bibi Netanyahu and you look at the Likud party, and Bibi Netanyahu, who, who I think is trade um, often in American media and around the world as being this crazy, fanatic, right-winger, this warmonger, and not as a moderate. He is the first prime minister here in Israel to openly say that I agree and am willing to work towards a two-state solution. Not even Yitzhak Rabin ever stated in a speech openly to the public that he agreed or thought that the best solution was for two states. Not even Yitzhak Rabin. Bibi Netanyahu, Benjamin Netanyahu is the first prime minister to state that. So I think it's important for the world to realize that, yes, everybody here in Israel and in the disputed territories, whether they are Arab, whether they're Muslim, Christian, whether they're Israeli, Jewish, wants to have peace, right? And we all want other individuals to be able to um, profit from their work and to live happily and to watch their children grow up and to get married and to have children of their own. That's a dream that is shared by all of humanity. And that's something that us Israelis and the government wants for the Arabs if they want to call themselves Palestinian or whatever they want to call themselves Palestinian. Who are we to tell them who they are? However, in order to achieve that, we need to have a true partner in peace. And the world needs to understand that Mahmoud Abbas, who's the president of the Palestinian Authority, is not that man. Right, Mahmoud Abbas is he pays the terrorists in the jails, he pays the families of terrorists, he accepts money from Iran that you just mentioned at the beginning of the show to give thirty thousand dollars for every house that's demolished of a terrorist. This is only going to excite individuals who've been radicalized by watching TV or listening to a sermon in a mosque to go ahead and not only get their 72 virgins in heaven or to be accepted into, the, in, into heaven to be able to sit on the right-hand side of Muhammad because they killed an innocent Jew, but not only that, they're going to leave behind $30,000 for a new house and their families will get a monthly stipend from the government because they did this. So Mahmoud Abbas is not a partner for peace. He openly states all the time that there will not be one Jew who will not be allowed one 
Jew to walk in the land of Palestine, in this new state of Palestine, not one Jew will be allowed there. That's crazy. That's crazy that the international community views this type of rhetoric as being moderate and Bibi Netanyahu as being a completely right-wing fanatic. I think Bibi well, let me Netanyahu ask you something. needs to stand I, strong. Yeah, okay. I, I think that uh, he's viewed, uh, Bibi is viewed as a right-winger in the United States by the media. He's not portrayed as a moderate. You're correct about that. But why do you think there is, there is uh, this proclivity to do this uh, is it because there is such a um, such an apparent inequality in power between the Israelis and the Arabs in the occupied territory, in the disputed territory? Is it because there's such a glaring uh, disparity in prosperity, in opportunity? Do you think that has something to do with why the world just automatically labels them as a victim and allows them things that they wouldn't allow the Israelis to say and do? Right. Well, first of all, I just want to clarify, it's not the occupied territories. That is, that's a loaded term, and it's an incorrect term that's been used in the media and throughout the world so often that many times people just automatically assume that that's the correct term for that area. It's the disputed territories. It's never okay. been independent since the fall of the Second Temple, not in 1948 because there was a war here, the War of Independence. The Jordanians controlled those areas of Judea and Samaria. Um, the world didn't recognize the Jordanian uh, ownership of the land. And then the Jordanians refused to make peace with Israel, even though we oftentimes came to them and said, hey, let's keep the border as is right now in 1949, the Armistice Agreement, which unfortunately is oftentimes referred to as the 67 borders, has nothing to do with 1967, has nothing to do with borders, because there was no border between Israel and Jordan, there was only an armistice line, a ceasefire line from the War of Independence. And in 1967, the Jordanians attacked Israel, right? The Jordanians right. attacked Israel, and it was a defensive war that Israel was defending itself. And during the period of, of, of our defense, we were able to take over a, a, a section of land, which by international law, and according to the Hague, post-1967, until recent times, even stated that this was a defensive war and Israel has the right to that property. That being said, as soon as the Six-Day War, 1967, was over, war was over, Israel went to the Arab nations and to the Arab League and said, we don't want this piece of land. We just want peace. And if you're willing to sign a peace treaty with you, we'll establish the border along the 1949 Armistice Agreement, or which is wrongly um, thought of as the 67 borders, but they refused that as well. So it's not occupied territories, it's the disputed territories, right? Okay, Israel's I stand never corrected. never actually annexed that land. Uh, okay. So, I, I think it's just, not, never mind you, but also I think that the listeners really need to understand that point. I think it's a very important point to understand, because if you think of it as being occupied, you immediately think that the people who are living there, the Arabs have some type of um, historical right to that land, and that would be untrue. Now, that being right. said, that being said, the people who live there have some type of right to independence, if that's what they're looking for, or 
they should become Israeli citizens. Now, Israel doesn't want them to become Israeli citizens because that will change the demographics. So Israel saying, okay, we will give you your state, but we need to have a partner in peace who can guarantee that in five years' time, you're not going to invite all of the jihadists that we see in ISIS in Syria, which has killed 270,000 people in the last three and a half years, or you're going to bring all the jihadists that we see in Iraq blowing up mosques in different places, or you're going to bring the jihadists that we see in Libya to your new country, Palestine, and bring them to the borders of Israel, and now we're going to have a serious conflict on our end. We need a government in Palestine. We need a government in a new Arab state that is going to be strong enough to keep the peace and to work with Israel hand-in-hand in in order to secure this region for a brighter future. And Mahmoud Abbas just simply isn't that man. David, I hate to end the show on that note, but it's been a fascinating talk with you. I could talk for hours about this subject, and I'm sure we've only whetted the appetite of our listeners. I'd love to have you back on another occasion to continue the discussion. Um, uh, That fantastic. Uh, you're listening to Monergy Life with host Robert Fisher and David Sussman. And David, you're, um, the best way to get in touch with you is through uh, email davidthetourguide at gmail.com. Is that, is that it? That, that's correct. But, but really, if anybody wants to contact me, I always um, suggest people to friend me on Facebook. And okay. I put a lot of information out on Facebook. They can look me up at David Sussman Israel Tours. That's my company on Facebook. Or they can just look me up, David Sussman, on Facebook. I'm here in Israel. Or like you said, my email address, which is davidthetourguide at gmail.com. My website, davidsussmanisraeltours.com. There's a number of ways that they can get a hold of me. David, a real pleasure to have you on today. And I want to thank my listeners again for tuning into Monergy Life. Have a great afternoon. David, thank you again. Thank Thanks you so Robert. much. Be well. Good. Bye. Take Goodbye. Care.